let's uh, pray and then we'll enter into the message today. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and kindness, your grace, your power. Thank you for your great salvation. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that as we look at your word, that your spirit would attend to uh, our hearts and bring the power of your word to convict us, to encourage us, to challenge us to grow. And we just pray that you would be glorified in everything that's said. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was raised in South Carolina, and there was a church that I attended when I was in college. There was a guy named Pastor Stuart Latimer. And uh, I always tell people that uh, he invested in my life so much that uh, I have a library now. And uh, he would give me a book for about every 15 minutes that I was with him. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, Knowing God. How many of you have read Knowing God by J.I. Packer? A dear brother passed away, went to be with the Lord just recently. And the book Knowing God is a book about knowing about God, his attributes, that sort of thing. And then also about knowing him personally, how to know him. And uh, this book had a great impact upon my life and it has upon, upon the lives of many others. And that book has sold over a million copies so he's, made, he's had a great impact. He's written a lot of other books that uh, I'd encourage you to read. If you haven't read Knowing God, you've got to read it. You've got to read it. Also, he wrote a little essay that really had more of an impact upon me than uh, any of the books I ever read by him. And it's called An Introductory Essay to John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Uh, in this essay, uh, he challenges us to evaluate a modern-day gospel, and it's probably a gospel that has arisen throughout church history, but a, a weak gospel, a, go, a gospel that says that essentially God is not sovereign over salvation, that he is like a, a hand-wringing, worrisome God who's hoping that you will somehow, by your own free will, choose Christ. He's a God that may not, in fact, save anyone unless they choose to be saved themselves. That's pitiful, isn't it? The, the thesis of Packer's essay is essentially God saves sinners. Now, every believer would probably go, amen. Oh, yeah, God saves sinners. But when you really think about the words, I want to ask three questions today that we're going to look at the book of Ephesians to answer. Who is this God who saves sinners. See, that's very important. What is your view of God and who He is and what He is like and what He does? Who are the sinners that He saves? You know, what does it mean to be a sinner and who, who are the ones? God doesn't save everybody, does He? And then, how does He save those whom He saves? What is the process? And what has God done? <clears throat> Jab Packer died July 17th, and I thought it would be just great to preach a sermon, not only to exhort us from God's word to teach us and to remind us of these great truths, but also to just pay tribute to J.I. Packer and, of course, to pay tribute to our God who saves sinners. So let's look at this first uh, question. The first question is not going to be answered per se from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We'll get to that in just a little while. But what I did is I went through 
the book of Ephesians. Now, you could do the whole Bible. That would be way too much of a project. But uh, the book of Ephesians, and I, I looked at what does it say about God? And you could follow through just everywhere it says the word God. And that's all I did. I didn't look at he or him or, or any of these uh, pronouns that refer to God. But what we see as we cover what I might call a biblical theology is that the God who saves, first of all, is one being. We are, we are monotheists. We believe that there is one living and true God. <clears throat> there are no other gods, no competing gods. And if you just look at the references to God in the book of Ephesians, you see that he's the creator of all things. He's the sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his wills, of his will. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And that's what I want to do today is just elevate our view of God and who he is. We see that he's, he's rich in mercy. He's determined to redeem a church as a people for his own possession he gives them the gifts of grace and faith and salvation in chapter 2, verse 8. He's the one who gives hope to the world, and he reconciles people to himself through the cross of Christ, forgiving their sins. He takes those who are excluded from the life of God, and he makes them new creatures created in the likeness of God. These people are called God's household, his dwelling place, and he fills them with all of his fullness. He also gives us, the church, the ministry and the power to, to show his wisdom through the church to all authorities and in heavenly places. And he's prepared each one of his chosen ones to walk in good works. It is he whom we are to dearly love and to obey and imitate his dearly loved children. And we're to love and forgive others. How's that for God? Okay? Your view of God. Now, God is not just one being. God is also triune, isn't he? Uh, God exists co-equally and co-eternally as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see each person in the book of Ephesians. I don't know, if, if you just, when you read your Bible, just look. We, we, we almost pass over the words God and Jesus and Christ and Lord and, and Holy Spirit and things like that because we, we take that part of it so much for granted. But if you read the book of Ephesians, it's something like that's in every verse. And I think we are, to, we are called to take notice. <clears throat> and we see each person described. We see uh, each person described in relationship to their plan or their part, rather, in the plan of redemption. First of all, we have the Father, right? Ephesians teaches us that He is the Father of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source, the Father is the source of the fountain of grace and peace. And He blesses us with every spiritual blessing you can read about in Ephesians chapter 1. He gave us spiritual wisdom, uh, and the Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, gives us access to the Father. And the Father is the, the Father of glory, and He is uh, the one that is over all, through all, and in all, according to chapter 4, verse 6. 
And we're taught in chapter 5 that we should bow down to him and continually give thanks to the Father. So you have God, you have the Father, you also have the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And there are four different references to the Son. He's called the Son of God, He's called Lord, He's called Jesus, and He's called Christ. Four significant references to Him. Uh, in Ephesians 4.13 is the only place he's called son. He is called the son of God. And it's, sa it's said there that the maturing of the church is going to be based upon, is going to be gained by our attaining more and more to the knowledge of the son of God. And we're going to grow in that knowledge and we're going to attain a full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ when we finally see him. And uh, you know, that's, that's just glorious to think about. Just, that's what a Christian does and is. It's somebody who gets to know more and more the Lord Jesus Christ. But that brings us to the, the second title there. Uh, he's called Lord. And when Jesus is called Lord, I mean, it's, it's true that as God, He is the sovereign creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He's, he's over all of creation, and He'll reign as King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. But... In the book of Ephesians, his reference to Lord is, he, is that he's the master over the church. He's the head of the church. And he's, he's the head over, he's the master of his servants. As Lord of his spiritual kingdom, he's the, the fountain of grace and peace, just like the Father. And his primary goal, this is amazing. You see how each one of the persons of the Holy Trinity are glorifying each other and in some kind of relationship to one another as the Holy Spirit gave us access to the Father. Well, Jesus Christ as Lord, his primary goal, according to chapter 1, verse 3 and 17, is to give glory to the Father. He's just giving glory to the Father. And he's the one through whom the Father carries out his eternal plan and purpose to save a people for his own possession. He sends the Son to do this. We are His temple. We're to walk in His light. We're to understand what the will of the Lord is. We're to please Him. We're to joyfully sing and give thanks to the Lord. When he gets to the latter part of the book of Ephesians, he starts describing relationships between believers. Uh, wives are to submit to their husbands, and children are to obey their parents, and, and slaves are supposed to serve their masters. But he makes it very clear that ultimately this is to be service and obedience and submission to the Lord. We, do all, we live out all of those relationships in our obedience to the Lord. And he is the rewarder of those who obey him. He's also called Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. So Jesus, in addition to being the Lord... And the Son of God is also called the Messiah. He is the person who is looked forward to from all of Old Testament prophecy. That he would be the fulfillment of being the, the king who would rule, the, the high priest. And Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 through 12 tells us that who the Messiah would be and what he would do to accomplish God's purpose was a mystery. You can follow mystery throughout Ephesians. And you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that mystery. He's the one 
under whom all things in heaven and earth will be summed up, reconciled, set right, and ruled over. Those who hope in Him will be people who will be to the glory and praise of Christ. We see that Christ is the name used or the title used when he describes that that he died, was raised from the dead, and was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And all people who have faith in him are made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians tells us that he has all rule, authority, power, dominion, which is above every other name now and forever. Everything's in subjection under his feet. He's the head over all things. He's the head of the church, his body, and he fills all with his fullness. He dwells in us, and in him are unfathomable riches, and his love for us surpasses knowledge. So Son of God gives us his relationship to the Father. Lord describes his relationship to believers as their master, Christ pictures him as the fulfillment of this kingly Messiah who would rule all things. And fourth, we have this precious name, Jesus. Now, Jesus means Yahweh saves. And so, therefore, it's no surprise that he would be our Savior And every time his name is used in the book of Ephesians, it is usually coupled with Lord or Christ, or maybe even all three, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is one place in chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul simply says, Truth is in Jesus. In the midst of all of this about God and the Holy Spirit and the Father, and Lord, and Christ, and being Messiah, being the Son of God, right in there, there's this little phrase, the truth is in Jesus. In Him is the truth that God saves sinners. Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God who became a man, who was born of a virgin, who performed all of these attesting Miracles. He lived a perfect life. He was betrayed, beaten, scorned, ridiculed, a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He died a death on the cross, a criminal's death. He suffered the wrath of God. He took the sins of all of his people upon himself, and he paid the penalty for our sins, taking upon him the wrath of God. He died there. But then he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he constantly intercedes on our behalf, giving us grace and help in times of need. He has accomplished our salvation. But when we study who this God is who saves sinners we dare not forget the Holy Spirit. Were you thinking, I wonder if he's going to get to the Holy Spirit. God is triune, but there's, there's so much to say about God. There's so much to say about the Father. There's so much to say about our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then there's the necessity of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul tells us that he seals believers and gives them access to a relationship with the Father, that he enables our prayers, that he makes the church the dwelling place of God, and he grieves when we sin. His word is his sword and reveals truth to believers. He strengthens us internally. He fills us. He unifies us. This is our God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. That's the first thing that's very important is that we have a high view of God. That we truly understand who He is, how mighty and holy and righteous and complicated and beyond understanding and finding out. His ways are higher than our ways. It is this God who saves sinners. Second question then, who are the sinners that God saves? Here we're going to turn to our main text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We see first that God saves dead sinners. Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This, of course, doesn't refer to physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. He talks about trespasses and sins. This would be... Uh, our spiritual life in relationship to our responsibility to God. We're supposed to obey Him. We're His creatures. He uses a metaphor of a dead person to describe the unbeliever's inability to accomplish anything that would be pleasing to God or in any way could contribute to His salvation. His whole existence is described or characterized as in trespasses and sins. A trespass means that you go where you're not supposed to go, right? Uh, we had in Brandon, where I pastored before, a homeless community that would kind of travel around. You might see one guy sitting by your fence one day. Next day, there are a couple. Next day, there are seven. You know, I mean, it just, and then eventually you have a uh, community camping out on your on your lawn. Well, our church had a lot of property, and this happened occasionally. And and so the sheriff came by, and he said, "You got to put up no trespassing signs." And then you, when you tell them they have to leave, then we could you know trespass them and and make them leave. And so we did that. But you know, a sinner is not just somebody who walks on and trespasses and where God says not to go. It's as if there's a graveyard and no one's supposed to be in this property, but there are people buried all over it. They're dead in the trespasses and sins, in the area that God has prescribed that they shouldn't even enter. His law circumscribes that. Then there's sins. You know, when you think of sins, you think of, uh, you can think of a whole catalog of sins, but in the biblical usage, a lot of times this is used to describe something, some way in which we fall short of a standard or we miss a mark. I uh, wanted my kids to do something besides watch uh, electronics ad nauseum. And so uh, we ended up getting a dartboard. And I, I love to play darts. 
And I thought, you know, if there's one thing I could beat my family at, it would surely be throwing a dart at a board, you know. Well, my youngest son, Caleb, he got a, a board out, and he wrote all of our names on it, and he was going to tally all the bullseyes that everybody gets. And so he started making marks. Every time you go out into the garage, he has marks crossed for himself, and he's got over 30 now. He has my name at the very bottom. I have one. See, I continually miss the mark. I miss the bullseye. But you know, there's one person that I can beat at darts. I can guarantee you. And that's a dead man. A corpse will never beat me at darts because they can't even know there's a dart there. Let alone touch it, pick it up and throw it and hit a mark. It's the same spiritually for all people who do not know Christ, all unbelievers, which we were. Spiritually dead people always cross the line. In fact, they live in that realm of crossing the line against God. They always miss the mark of their standard that God requires. That's the sphere of their existence. Have you ever thought about uh, or ever seen one of those little uh, hamster balls? Pet a hamster in there and he can, he can roll all over the house, but he can't get lost, doesn't fit places where he can get lost, and he doesn't get into anything. But that's the realm of his existence, isn't it? He's always in that realm, in that sphere. And, and that's what the picture that Paul paints of an unbeliever, that they're always in the sphere of sins and trespasses. And there's a sense in which they're enslaved, and that's what he describes in verses 2 and 3. God, God saves enslaved sinners. Look at verses 2 and 3. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. <clears throat> in these two verses, there are three descriptions of the unbeliever's worldview. The un unbeliever exists in this sphere of thinking and evaluating things um, and saying this is right, this is wrong. Their, their conscience is evaluating things based upon their worldview. And there are three determining influences of the unbeliever's worldview. First of all, they're totally captivated by the world's thinking and lifestyle. Somebody who's not a believer is going to be utterly influenced by the world. It says that they walk according to the course of this world. Their thoughts, their decisions, their ideas, their goals come from the philosophies of the world. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently, and they were saying that uh, you know, they were uh, transgender. And, and I, I said, well, you know, they, they thought it would shock me. You know, and I said, well, um, I expect that from you because you're, you're of your worldview. But you need to understand that my worldview is conditioned by Scripture 
So I evaluate things as to whether they're right or wrong based upon the Word of God. And that gives us a format. Uh, it gives us a way in which to discuss things. But I think it's very crucial that you understand that this world does not think like we do. I mean, that may be obvious to many of you, but sometimes we are drawn into some sense that we're going to have a, a level playing field and speak the lang same language as, as unbelievers are. <clears throat> Even your children. If your children are not believers, they're not going to think the way that you do. They're also, and get this one, this one is so crucial too. They are totally influenced by Satan. Verse 2 adds that they walk according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So uh, the world is Satan's domain. So we should not be surprised that he's the, the prince of it and that he works in unbelievers. He, other verses say he's captivated them to do his will. He's working in the sons of disobedience, people who are characterized by disobeying God. They're in trespasses and sins. This is the, 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 the realm where they are blinded. They're blinded to truth. And Satan seeks to, to kill them. Satan doesn't love the people in his realm. He's got them kept prisoner, and he wants to destroy them. He wants them to go to hell. But there's a third way that we are corrupted we are corrupted by our own internal desires. Look at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The word flesh is used in the Bible to describe the sinful influences in our heart, soul, and mind. We have this, this lust, we have these desires, we have these thoughts of ourselves. That I want what I want. Nobody can constrain me. I'm going to pursue my pleasure, my desires, my lusts. This is the way that man is apart from the grace of God. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. So the unbeliever's life is totally dominated by the world, by Satan, and by self. And verse 3 tells us that we were that way by nature. He says, we were by, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, think with me for just a minute. Should a believer and an unbeliever date or get married? I mean, if you really take seriously how the Bible describes an unbeliever's mindset and world and life view, I don't care how nice they are, how much common grace there has been poured into their surroundings and, and 
how much restraint has been placed on their life by God. Unequally yoked is only scratching the surface as to how different and radically different the two are. So take that to heart. Verse 3 says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What we've described here is simply the nature of the unbeliever. But the word wrath there indicates that there's a condemnation as a result of this. All of this blindness, all of this evil is culpable. People are guilty for their sins and their trespasses against God. But, you know, I keep on saying, but God saves these people. We were those people, and God saves them. So we see in verse 3 also that God saves condemned people. Unbelievers do naturally what unbelievers do, which is anything but what God requires. And we're all born that way. But verse 3 says they are children of wrath. The Bible describes the penalty of sin as death. But it's not just a physical death. It's an eternal death. Separated from the presence of God, cast into the lake of fire for eternity, suffering agony. A lot of people have stopped talking about hell. But Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Sinners are justly condemned. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, and if, ever, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire. But in that same verse, it says, book of life. There's hope there, isn't there? There is a lake of fire, but there's a book of life. And that brings us back to chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians, where it says, but God... This is a desperate, horrible situation. The condemnation of wicked sinners who are enslaved in this way. But God saves sinners. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's great news. God loved us. Famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 3 tells us that God determined a way that, that he could be just. In his plan, he is righteous and he must punish sin. To be a just judge, right? You, you don't want to go before a, a judge or that's going to be unjust, do you? But God determined that he would be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That's, he did that by sending Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to be absolutely righteous, performing attesting miracles, showing that he's God in the flesh, and then dying on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took our sins upon himself. And he paid the penalty. He took the guilt, the reproach for that sin. And he, in so doing, appeased the wrath of God. It's called propitiation. And he says that those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who trust in him as their Savior, are considered justified. So he condemns his son in our behalf, on our behalf, in our place, and he transfers his righteousness into our account. And we are seen as absolutely righteous before the just judge of the universe. And we are forgiven for all of our sins. So God saves sinners. But he only saves specific sinners. Does God save everyone? No. You already know people who have died without Christ, don't you? Throughout Ephesians 2, you can see that Paul is talking to Christians about their salvation. And he says, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Among them we too all formerly lived. We were by nature children of wrath. He loved us even when we were dead. He raised us up, seated us. And he goes on and on. You can see the, all the we's in us. These are people who have escaped the dominating influence of the world and the control of Satan and even the blinding effects of their own corrupt natures. You see, no one is able in and of themselves to see their depraved condition and they can do nothing to respond to God or anything to save themselves from His wrath unless God has decided to do it. What has God done? Well, He's chosen to save a people for His own possession. All of mankind would go, would go astray. We're always going astray. We're always blinded. We, we run from the light. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Number one, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. And then down in verse 11, again it says, we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. The Bible teaches that we are all born as dead sinners. And that's how we live, as dead sinners. And God would be perfectly just in having condemned every single one of us to hell. We need to grab hold of that thought. 
We deserve nothing but hell. If you have sinned one time, you're guilty of the whole law. This great God we've talked about, he would be just. But he chose to save a people for his own possession. And it says he predestined them. Before the foundation of the world, God decided, before he created anything, he decided to save a people. And it says he, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're talking about the doctrine of unconditional election, which is defined as God's election is free, sovereign, unconditional choice of sinners as sinners to be redeemed by Christ, given faith and brought to glory. God not only chose whom he would save, but he also sent Christ to rescue and save these particular people. I love the Gospel of John where it says so many things like this, that, that he came for his sheep. They are his sheep. He will lose none of those that the Father has given him. He lays his life down for the sheep. He calls his sheep by name and they hear his voice. They respond. In verse 4, chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, did this. He set his love upon you before the foundation of the world and determined that he would save you in Christ. Does that make you thankful? The point here is that God really does save Sinners. So we have God. We have the sinners that he does save. They're really sinners. As sinners, he chooses to save a people for himself. And how does God save the sinners that he does save? Our third question. Listen to Packer describe the word saves. God does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory. He plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. But God does this through means. The foolishness of preaching. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to talk about this, but, but before we look at that, we see in chapter 1 verse 13 that God saves sinners through the gospel. It says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. He's saying, Ephesians, the way you came to your senses was that God brought somebody to preach the gospel to you. And God used his word to have his spirit speak to you through it so that your eyes would be opened. You will be enlightened. You will be born again. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, but we really believe in sola scriptura, a definition. It simply means that all truth is necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or, ex in, or implicitly in the scriptures. That's something really important in our day and age too is people want to try all kinds of things. They want to try to 
persuade people to become Christians, have, have arguments, argue them into the kingdom of heaven, beg and plead with people, and think that somehow by the exertion of our effort that we can cause them to be saved. But the only tool that God has given for you to bring people to faith in Christ is His Word. But it's amazing. Have you ever seen that happen? Maybe, I mean, it probably happened to you, but, but have you ever seen when you, know, you reason with somebody from the Scriptures and so many people reject, and then all of a sudden there's this one person that you start to share the Scriptures with and you've been rejected so many times that you're almost like, whoa, wait, what's happening here? They're seeing it. They're believing it. They're convicted by their sins. They're, they're weeping and, and seeing that they need this Savior, Jesus Christ, that the Scriptures describe. They have the weight of their sin and they, they all of a sudden they're repenting and believing and placing their faith in Christ and, and wanting to live and serve to follow Him. It's a glorious thing just through the Word of God. And God uses the Word of God to make sinners alive. Look at verse 5. It says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive. You get the picture there? Spiritually dead, trespasses and sins. All of a sudden, the dead are raised to life. He made us alive. You remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus is dead. He's in a tomb. He's wrapped up with whatever wraps and ointments that they put him in. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus walks out of the tomb. He's alive. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. See, spiritually we're dead. We have to be raised. It's by the call of God that He effectually calls us. He regenerates us. He brings us to life. He makes us alive. That's the only way that you come out of this realm of worldliness and satanic philosophy and enslavement to your own sins. It's irresistible. It's like switching a light on. There was only darkness, and then the light is flipped, and now there's light penetrating everything. Irresistible grace is what it is. The Holy Spirit is working to bring people to faith. Well, God not only saves dead sinners. He not only makes these sinners alive, but He does this by grace and not works. In verse 5, it says, by grace you have been saved. In verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. What does man contribute to his salvation? Absolutely nothing. It is all by grace. Not any works, because if there was anything you did, even if you just somehow figured it out and mustered up enough faith to believe... If that was true, it wouldn't be a gift. 
He wouldn't have made you alive. There would be no real significance to him making you alive. You'd be some, you're, you're partially alive. Maybe you were just on like a life support or something. But no, we're dead. And he speaks through his word. The Holy Spirit causes us to be regenerated. God gives us the gift of faith in a regenerated, breathing, spiritually alive person has that faith, the, the two sides of faith. You believe the truth that you were given, and you trust in it. God saves sinners by grace and through faith. The most important thing probably here, though, is that he saves sinners by union with Christ. Apart from Christ, there'd be no salvation. But we see there in verse 5 that he made us alive. Listen to these phrases. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ alone. One of the most beautiful, important doctrines in the Bible is our union with Christ. You see, when Christ accomplished the work that he accomplished, you are seen as having been with him in that work he accomplished. When he raised up Christ, you're raised to life with him. You're seen as having overcome sin, Satan, and death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have the hope of the resurrection the new body and heavenly existence as well because of Christ. And it says, we've been seated with him in heavenly places. That's our position. Don't you look forward to the time when it's your practice. God also saves sinners with a purpose in mind. Not only to be a a people of his own possession. But God saves sinners for good works. He hasn't taken us to be with Christ where he's seated in heaven yet. But while you're here on this earth, he has a purpose for you. The, the whole first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are what we might call the doctrinal section. And the second half are the application of the doctrine, the working out of our salvation that he has worked into us. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, ends our passage like this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God saves you, he gives you work to do. He wants you to put on display his great grace. He wants you to put on display the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to be a, a sweet aroma to him because of Christ in you. He wants you to be pleasing to him. And he predestined us, he chose us in Christ so that we would be blameless and holy before him. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. And so, 
we're not instantly made blameless and holy. I don't know about you, but that's not what happened with me. But we have a new worldview, don't we? And we begin to have the ability now to produce good works. And you are God's project. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. God is the designer. He's the crafter. He's the builder. And he's working to make each one of us to be to the praise of his glory. We're the trophies of his grace in heaven for all eternity. He's going to make us absolutely free from sin, absolutely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How glorious that will be. But not only are you God's project, but you're a new creature. He says you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. If 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new creature now. You have new desires. You, you have a new ability. You can be an overwhelming conqueror. Christ wants to make you someone who displays good works. It says we're created for good works. Now, that's crucial. That's a good way for us to determine whether our faith is genuine. Do you have a desire to do good works to the glory of your Father? And is your life showing that you're a new creature in Christ? James chapter 2, verse 26 says that faith without works is dead. But it's amazing. Are you doing some good things? Are you trying to serve Christ? I know, I know we're, we're not perfect, but it should be so encouraging to you if God has freed you out of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his light, the dearly loved son kingdom, if you have a desire to please him, you see changes in your life, you're serving, you're talking differently, you're loving your, your spouse, you care about your children and how you're raising them. These works were prepared beforehand by he who works all things to the counsel of his will. That should give us a great sense of significance of every single thing that happens to us and through us and with us and around us every single day. It's no, it's no accident, it's no happenstance that my nephew committed suicide last month. It's no strange coincidence that my daughter is getting married next Saturday. It's no accident that my mother needs some place to go and she's going to come live with us this next weekend. When Lindsay moves out, she moves in. There's no, it's no accident that we have the coronavirus all in our society right now. There's, it's no accident that we have a tropical storm that's headed this way. It's no accident the relationships that you are in. Allow this great God who saves sinners 
to cause you to see that every single thing in your life has great significance and God cares and he wants to work in you to bring others to salvation and to cause others to grow. And he's going to shape and mold you and make you into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants you to walk before him. I'm just going to end with this. God saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, I just think about just praying right now and how the work of the Spirit is giving me access to you just to talk to you. You've adopted me into your family as a child. And you enable me to have that relationship because of what Christ did. Let's just be humbled, Lord, that you would save us. There may be some things that are new to people here today. We, so much of Christianity really doesn't talk or think too much or maybe even teach accurately things like election and predestination and irresistible grace and many other doctrines that we've really talked about today, even if we haven't mentioned the names, Lord. But don't let anyone go away with uh, confusion or without having questions answered, but let them see that we really care about the scriptures. And if there's something new, that help them to seek it out, understand it. Lord, we pray that we would always exalt your sovereign grace. Thank you for saving us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.